0: again, everyone, and welcome back to The front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Facillo, as always, joined by Joe Resinello. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York City metropolitan area. Today, Joe and I are, are you know, we have on a lot of people, a lot of different authors talking about a lot of different things. Uh, very, very rarely do we have on royalty. Uh, and today we're very pleased and honored. To be joined by Edward Habsburg and uh, Edward has written a new book out from Sophia Press, uh, The Habsburg Way, Seven Rules for Turbulent Times. And in case any of you out there are asking, is it uh, Edward of the Habsburgs? Yes, it is. Uh, So we're very pleased and honored to have him here. And many of you out there have heard of Edward. If not, I will give a brief bio. Edward Habsburg is Hungary's ambassador to the Holy See and the Sovereign Order of Malta. His family reigned in Austria, Hungary, Germany, and Spain, and quite a few other places. Also known as Archduke Edward of Austria, he is a diplomat and social media personality. Uh, He and his wife, Baroness Maria Theresa von Gudanes, I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, have six children. And he is also the author of several books, including the children's book, Dubby, the Double-Headed Eagle. Uh, he's written volumes on Quinas, James Bond, Harry Potter, novels, and screenplays. Edward Habsburg, welcome to the front line with Joe and Joe.
2: Thank you very much for having me on board, and many greetings from Rome, where I'm currently sitting. Excellent. I wish I was in Rome.
0: I was just <laughs> commenting to my wife recently. We're coming up on our 10-year anniversary, uh, wedding anniversary, and we went to Rome for... Um, for our honeymoon, I was like, "I was like, honey, when are we getting back there? We said we were going to go on our fifth anniversary, and we haven't made our way back there yet. So I got to say, Edward, I'm a little bit jealous. Uh, I want to sit there in the Piazza del Popolo and have a little espresso, if you know what I mean.
2: Yes, but console yourself with the thought that you now have a Hungarian ambassador who can take you around and show you the type So you have to come back. Okay, yeah, I'm going to take you up on that, brother. I'm going to take you up on that. So we'll get started. This is going
0: to be a great conversation. Obviously, we're in we're in turbulent times, and the first thing we need, of course, is prayer. With that, I'm going to send it over to Joe Resinello.
1: Edward, we always start with a prayer to Our Lady. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Remember, O Most Gracious Virgin Mary, never was it known that anyone who sought your help or sought your intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, we fly unto you, a virgin of virgins, our mother. To you we come, for you we stand, sinful and sorrowful. O oh, mother, the word incarnate, despise not our petitions, but in your clemency hear and answer us. Amen. Amen. Name of the Father, amen. Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Edward, I think a good place to start is to just give a little background, briefly, your family background. I know uh, it reaches back to the 12th century in Europe, but just to give people an idea of uh, what your family you know, has done, where you've been located, what you've been doing, and then I think we can move forward.
2: The Habsburg family started out in the southwestern corner of Germany and Switzerland, and uh, about uh, 800 years ago, they were a family of counts, and then one of them became the Holy Roman Empire emperor in in 1273. And suddenly, we were catapulted into world history. And the Habsburgs haven't left European history for the next 800 years. Um, so, the, I, at the beginning, they were in Switzerland. Then. They moved to Austria, and from there they took over a mixture of Austria, Hungary, Bohemia, the Netherlands, what was once Burgundy, then Spain, and with Spain, um, overseas, uh huge parts of the world in the end. And uh, I wouldn't uh, want to miss the fact that at least three um, states in the United States can be considered old Habsburg territory. For instance, Texas, the first governor of Texas was put there by the Spanish Habsburgs. And so was, that was the history until the First World War. We were around until the First World War, and in 1918, the Habsburg Empire ended. And today, we are about 400 family members spread out all over the world, still having many children, getting married, being very Catholic. And that's the Habsburg family.
0: And I- you know, I I find it very interesting. Obviously, Edward, you mentioned, um, you know, World War I, you know, brought it, brought an end to, I guess, many empires. Um, and, and we're always told that that's such a great thing. Like, I remember in school, but I always remember asking myself, well, why? Like, I've had this conversation with people as far as, like, let's say, empires and monarchies. And what makes what we have now inherently, inherently better, using a word, better than, let's say, a monarchy why is i i've asked this question of many people who let's say who, are, who might be on the political left i say why should i in a knee-jerk way have a disdain for monarchies or for an emperor in other words in many ways i would say that that those let's take the austro-hungarian empire okay um was was very stable for for a number of centuries okay i'm not saying that it's not without problems but Democracy doesn't seem to be all that in a bag of potato chips either, at least what it's what we have now in, in America. Am I off in my assessment in that? What
2: are your thoughts on that? First of all, Joe, you're of course, you jump right into the middle of many of the topics of my book uh, with your question. Um I would say the main reason why you are being told that monarchy is something bad and thank God it's gone, is because America is built upon the myth. Of fighting tyrants and monarchs, and um, therefore that, that would be a natural step to think that monarchy must automatically be something wrong. Uh, of course, it isn't, because for for several ten thousand of years, most of human history was monarchies, and. Um, And a good monarch, and I think the Habsburg monarchs were for the greatest part good monarchs that were responsible to God and that had to account for their deeds in front of God one day. A good monarch uh, will try to give his people justice, will try to be there for his subjects, will try to live as a good Christian. And all of that is an element that uh, we are missing today. One of the reasons I wrote this book was I thought about uh, what are those seven values of our family and why are they not around anymore? Uh, Why do we find them so rarely? Why do perhaps our politicians not check all the boxes that the Habsburg monarchy checked? And um, I give you one example. One example. Um, uh, Blessed Emperor Karl, the last Habsburg emperor, the only member of our family that was beatified um, under John Paul II. Uh, he was a saintly man, a really saintly man, a good emperor in the very short one and a half years that he ruled. But after he went into exile, and in the end when he lay dying on the island of Madeira, he had offered his life to God for his people. He, obviously, he really offered God his life so his people would have peace. Now I ask you, can you imagine any politicians we have nowadays, that would offer his life for his people. Uh, It's hard to imagine, you know. Um, Monarchs were used that they couldn't get out of the chair. Once you were there, you were stuck with it. Uh, Your son had to live with your decisions. If you made a decision, you had, to, you had to live with that for a long time. Many politicians nowadays make a few years of politics, and then they try to find some good job somewhere in finances or somewhere else and never have to look back because they don't carry the responsibility. A monarch doesn't have this luxury. So there is pros and cons for every form of government. But what I wanted to say is it wasn't all bad, even if the United States are built on the idea of fighting against tyrants. I, I will say this. I'm going to
0: hand it over to Joe Edward Habsburg, uh, Habsburg joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. We're discussing his new book, The Habsburg Way, Seven Rules for Turbulent Times. Please don't buy it from the big box places. Buy it from the publisher. Let's support our Catholic publisher, Sophia Press. Um, I will say this to answer your question, and you know the answer to it anyway. uh, No, I can't imagine any politician giving his life for his people, okay? I think all you need to do is survey either the European landscape or the American political landscape, and you'll find exactly zero who are willing to give their lives. Joe Resinello.
1: Just to talk about Blessed Carl, I mean, clearly he understood the idea that in order to rule— You must know how to serve, and he served God first. I think that's the differentiating factor with your family. You serve God, and in serving God, you serve the people. And there's a saying, I went to a Jesuit college, those who've been given much, much is expected. And if God has given you something, he expects something from you. And Blessed Carl understood that. You see, that is the difference between a Catholic ruler. He has a responsibility. I've been given something. I must share it because God will hold me accountable. And this man understood that. That's why he will be a saint one day. Talk about that because, to be honest with you, we're three Catholic men. God has given us gifts and we're trying our best to use them. That's what it means to be Catholic. And this man was given something great and he used it and he brought glory to God as a result of it. That's what your family has done. And I think that's what the world needs. Please talk about that.
2: Yes. Um, The the last chapter in my book. The last of the seven principles or rules of our family is die well. And I told the publisher I could have put that at at the first place because all Habsburgs over the last 800 years were horribly aware of the fragility of their lives and that they sort of held their soul in their hand. They knew that they had to give their soul back um, to God at some point and they were going to be asked, how did you live your life? as a family father, as a husband, as an emperor, and as a Christian. This was something that shaped them profoundly. So, If you're like that, then you will hesitate before you become really corrupt or really nasty. Because you always have your eyes um, on on eternal life. Um, Most Habsburgs went to Mass, if not every day, then regularly. They were they were they, they had sacraments in front of their eyes. They went to confession. This is something that shaped you for life. We are living in a time where we've gotten used to religion being out of the public um, base, space, not that much in the States. In Europe, it's cemetery. In Europe, you never see faith. No politician will admit his or her faith um, in Europe. But if I know the faith of a politician or of a ruler, then I can help him or her accountable to that. And I know what their values are. We live in a time where everybody is supposed to be neutral and never say anything that could hurt or um, estrange anybody of another faith, of another conviction. But that doesn't work that way. When you were in, in Habsburg Empire, you knew what you bought with that. The Habsburg rulers were Catholic, full stop. Blessed Emperor Karl, um, we have a WhatsApp group in the family. Um, and about four years ago, I made an official poll among the young Habsburgs. I asked them, what's your favorite Habsburg out of the 800 years? Who are the, which are the coolest? Um, and, you know, I expected some of the more famous names, Karl V or Franz Joseph, to pop up nearly all of them said blessed emperor karl who in the eyes of the world she took over in the war that we were losing he lost the war he lost the empire he only ruled for one and a half years and he died miserably in exile in the world in the eyes of the world it's a total loser for you and this is a saint and this is the favorite um, Habsburg in my family, and I asked him why? Why did Emperor Karl? And the answer of one of them was because he did what he his life. He did live his life as a family father and husband, as a Christian, and in his job, which happened to be emperor, the fullness under the eyes of God. And I think that's the answer for you. A Habsburg will always see himself under the eyes of God and will will do whatever they do under the eyes of God. And you won't behave the same way as if you think that God doesn't see you, really.
0: I think that's one of the the main features of the modern world is that you mentioned earlier that as politicians, Edward, I'm not going to disagree with you, but just a, a little tweak I would say is that the, the ruler or those in power now, I don't believe are expected to be neutral. I don't see that. I think they're expected to be anti-religion. Now, and I that's not me sounding like some persecuted Catholic. That's just the way I see it. It's a, it's an aggressive atheism that started in the culture, but now has bled into the, the halls of power. Um, they expect you to be anti, particularly Catholic, but anti-Christian in general, and certainly anti Anything, anything resembling objective moral truth, um, but let's keep it. You, you mentioned marriage. Let's keep it there for a second. Edward Habsburg joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. Um, what are the main ingredients for a stable? It might seem obvious, but for a stable marriage, how does one create that deep bond? Uh, deep bond between spouses.
2: Well, if you can learn something from Habsburg <laughs> history. Um, It's not marry your cousin, which is, of course, a great cliche. Um, But if you can learn something from our family history, it is, apart from mutual attraction, Um, it is that you need to have the basic facts in common. You need to have faith in common. It's very difficult if you don't have faith in common. You need to have the outlook on life in common, the basic ideas about marriage and procreation, you have to agree with your future spouse that you want to be open for life and what that means. Uh, some people may say, well, if I have one and a half children, then I'm open for life. That's what's the reality here in Italy, uh, where you never see pregnant women on the streets. Um, some others say, well, we'll begin with six children and then we'll see. So uh, if you don't agree on these things, um, and you have to have the same vision of, uh, of marriage, which is the Catholic one. I believe the Catholic teaching on sexuality and marriage is the best and most fit to bring human beings to perfection and to happiness and to real happiness. I'm married in 27 years now. We have six children. God was very generous to us. And my marriage is a happy one. I love my wife. I find her attractive after 27 years. I love her much more than I did when I got married to her. Can you imagine someone saying that nowadays? Because the ingredients will rise. Now, most people don't even begin like that. Most people just live together and have a relationship, then live together a bit longer, and then they try to cement that by getting married, that usually makes the thing fall apart, or by having a child, that usually causes problems. But if you go into marriage, you're not living together. If you go into marriage by having a common project, having clarified all the ideas that you have on marriage, then go into marriage and begin your relationship in your marriage open for life and you live with it, that changes everything. But the most important ingredient is faith, of course, because life will throw so many curveballs at you and so many pianos. And it's going to be tough, it's going to be hard, you're going to be exhausted if you can pray together. Everything changes. Mother Teresa used to say, "Family that prays together stays together," and I, I can heartily agree on that. So these are some of the ingredients that you find in my family, but that every family can live.
0: Edward Habsburg is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. Edward, I'm going to hand it over to Joe Rossinello, but I would say this. One thing that's a very encouraging sign, and this is a bit anecdotal, I know. I'm sure the statistic, though, might bear this out. I think the younger generation is fed up with the sexual revolution because in my travels here in Arizona and in New Jersey, uh, I was blessed to see um, younger people in their 20s doing exactly what you just described, when I see a young woman, 25 years old, with one little child on her side, one in her arms and one in her belly going up to receive communion, okay, then I say there's hope for the world. Because what, what you just described is countercultural. And I think, as Joe Racinello likes to say all the time, if you think all that's working out for you, go look out the window and let me know. Bring bring me back some notes from the sexual revolution. And I think we're seeing, thank God, I think we're seeing a reaction to that, and people are getting back to the principles uh, that are necessary for a for a, for a great marriage. Okay, and it's exactly what you just described, Joe Rasinello.
1: It's funny you mentioned Italy. I mean, my family, you know, is from Italy. My great grandmother had seventeen children. That's gone. The Italian family is disintegrated in Europe. Um, that is a shame. And and to echo what you just said. I think the modern marriage is the couple is looking at each other, and they think that will sustain them. They have to look in the same direction, and that's God. When you do that, your marriage will be productive and fruitful and lasting. Also, the rosary. You mentioned prayer. My marriage is grounded in God and the rosary. We pray the rosary together every night for 10 years never one night have we missed that and God, that is you. how you sustain your marriage the world thinks that these are like almost ridiculous ideas but they are absolutely solid and and been proven it it's it, 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 it boggles my mind how modern man thinks they could reconfigure the wheel Uh, The wheel works just fine (laughs) the way it is. And I, and I agree with you 100%. I just wanted to say that you have it, you have it spot on. And to be truthful with you, if the world did what you did, so many of the problems would disappear.
2: Uh, That's very nice to hear. I I believe that one of the main problems is that we never experience this. Uh, We don't see families with seven, eight children. We don't see parents that pray with their children. And I I will go a step further and say we don't see our political leaders do that. You you have a few very good also Catholic uh, political leaders in the States. In Europe, most political leaders either don't have children or are not married or never show themselves with family. People don't see family in, in the public space. They, they don't ever see that it is something encouraged by the state. Now, I happen to come from a country where this is different. Hungary is strongly encouraging families to have several children. They are helping them to do so. And many people also don't feel that the state has got their back when they want to decide for a more numerous family. And but the central thing really is, is, are, you're, you're in trouble when you want to, for instance, decide to stay at home as a mother. Uh, people will yell at you. You can't do that. And we live in a time where people are sitting in front of screens, are alone, don't experience family, don't experience community, don't experience sexuality the way... God wanted them to experience. They were lost, everybody's lost, and, and that's why families are important. When you want to meet a family with parents who pray, when you meet this kind of situation, Joseph, that you just described, I, I was last year, uh, I, I gave a talk about Blessed Emperor Karl in Plano, near Dallas, and the conference hall was filled with 700 people. All of those were young families. So many children, so many young families, and all of them told me afterwards in, in you know, in the one-on-one, we want to be like Blessed Carol. We want to live like him. We want to put God in the middle of our, of our families. It happens. It exists. It's the thing that will give you long-lasting happiness and solidity for your relationship. And it, it's going to spread. It's going to spread. I'm very, very hopeful there
0: yeah, I, I, and Joe and I point out like some some statistics. so it's not just our our own opinion, okay. um you you take, let's say, for argument's sake, when you look at uh, the divorce rate amongst self-identified Roman Catholics, okay? It's just as high as the rest of the culture, okay, the the rest of society. However, when you do that same poll of self-identified Catholics who also go to uh, at least weekly Mass, pray every day and go to frequent confession, that divorce rate drops to 4%. And open to life. And open to life. That divorce rate drops to 4%. That's a statistic. That's not a couple of gorillas from New Jersey saying that, okay? That's. (laughs) It shows, Edward, that, you know, these things work. They're not just some out there in the ether and we're just pulling them out and saying, here, do this, some magic potion. No, bringing God into the center, you're... Edward, I don't have to tell you this, but you know as well as I do. You, we're all sinners, okay? Nobody's perfect over here. Nobody's walking on water. But I will tell you this. Our lives, and we could demonstrate, are infinitely better than those out there who don't, let's say, put God in the center. I like to ask you a question before we go to the break. Promise, Edward, I promise we're not going to get you in any trouble over here, okay? Maybe. Um we recently had on uh the president of Ave Maria University, Mark Mittendorf, uh, because uh Kathleen Novak was giving a speech, who is now the president of Hungary at uh Ave Maria University. What is your view in a couple of minutes before the break, just in, in a general way? You see um Viktor Orban, all right, Kathleen Novak, Poland. Austria seems to be, there seems to be a resurgence and a a countercultural move there. Um, Italy just elected Giorgia Maloney, who at least when you listen to her, she seems very pro-family, unapologetically Christian. Uh, she gave a three-minute speech recently that had gave me goosebumps because I haven't heard anything like that in quite some time. What is your view of, of, is there a resurgence and a countercultural move happening in the EU right now in individual European nations?
2: I would love to tell you that there is a huge move happening. I can't, I can't say that. Europe is, is a very difficult place, but there are signs of hope. Central Europe is really a different place. Um, Viktor Orban once in a speech here in, in Rome, he said, um, uh, the, the EU, Brussels, always tells us that Hungary and Poland don't stand for European values anymore. But I ask you, if the founders of the European Union, Schumann de Gasper Gardner, would come back today, where would they find the European values? In Brussels or in Central Europe? And you're right, Hungary, Poland, also in Italy you now have a government that seems to be more pro-family, and um, there is hope. But it's still small and local. And the problem is, uh, conservative values in politics won't last if you don't have a basis of lived faith under it. And Europe is very, very secularized. We have a a very, very secularized church, church structure, parishes. And conservatism in itself doesn't work. It doesn't work without a strong basis in faith. Therefore, let's pray for good families. Um, let's pray for faith to spread and then values will follow. That's how I see it.
0: Uh, uh, yeah, well, Joe and I would definitely agree with you on that. So if you're just joining us, we have uh, Edward Habsburg um, t- here at the front line with Joe and Joe on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. We're discussing his new book, The Habsburg Way seven rules for turbulent times if you don't think we're living in turbulent times then you probably have your head in the sand um because we obviously are and we're happy that edward has has chimed in on this in these turbulent times um so we we encourage you all to go out and buy the book but please buy it from the publisher from Sophia press edward before we take a break let our audience know uh where are you on social media where could folks find out a little bit more about what you have going on
2: Well, if you go on Google and just type my name, you will automatically drop into my Twitter account. I have an incredibly active Twitter account. Uh, My wife thinks I spend far too much time on Twitter, but I I explained to her that I'm saving the world, so I have to. (laughs) And I'm I'm tweeting mostly about faith, family, My work as an ambassador, Godzilla movies from time to time, um, just to loosen it up a bit. Um, And I'm, of course, right now, if you would go on Twitter right now, you would see that I'm in the middle of a championship of favorite Habsburgs, where I, um, I, as a Habsburg, democratically ask you to vote for your favorite Habsburgs. You can then move to the next round. And this is going to take a few more weeks. So whenever you're going to check it out, you will still find it. It's wonderful for me. It's wonderful for me because I, I can see how much enthusiasm for my family is around there. But to get back to your question, Twitter is the place to find me. And it's also a place where you can call me. You can write me a direct message. My direct messages are open. And if you ever come to Rome, of course, you have to reach out and tell the ambassador you're coming. And I, I might find the time spend time with you in Rome.
0: Uh, I think my wife and I are going to take you up on that, hopefully over the next year. Um, so we're going to take a quick break at the front line with Joe. And Joe, stick around. We have Edward Habsburg for one more segment. This is a great conversation.
1: Where there's Catholic radio. The folks who listen deepen their faith. Families are strengthened. Parishes and communities flourish. So, let people know you're listening to Veritas. Tell your friends to tune in. And let's make an impact here for Jesus and his church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network.
0: Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo and Joe Rasinello. We're way in the breach with Edward Habsburg. We're discussing uh, his new book, Out from Sophia Press, The Habsburg Way Seven Rules for Turbulent Times. Joe Ressinello.
1: Edward, in the book, uh, you mentioned some dates. We talked about Blessed Carl. What are some five dates in the history of your family that are significant?
2: Yes, I propose these dates in my book so you can get a faster, a faster grasp on my family history because it's a long one and it's a complicated one. So uh, the first date is twelve seventy-three. That was when the first Habsburg was elected first time uh, emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. Twelve seventy-three. Um, then until fifteen hundred. That's the next date I propose to learn. Very easy. Fifteen hundred. That was more or less the moment when the Habsburg empire from from a small, more Austria-centered world exploded onto the world scene by taking, in very few years, the Netherlands, Hungary, Bohemia, Spain, and with Spain, the new world and islands all over the world and parts of the United States. So we have 1273, 1500. Um, 1700 is the moment when the two lines of the Habsburgs, ended uh, because we had one Spanish line and one Austrian line. So 1700 is is the next uh, number that you can easily keep in mind. Um, Then, of course, 1806, that is the date when the Holy Roman Empire ended. Holy Roman Empire was not an empire like the one in Star Wars, but a very different one. We can talk about that later. And 1918, of course, is the date when the Habsburg Empire ended once and for all. For the time being. (laughs) That's a
0: that's a pretty, pretty broad uh, view of history. I mean, every date you mentioned, we could have hours long conversations with each individual one. I always but I I will always say and I always knew this growing up. mainly you know listening to my father my father was just a blue-collar guy same as joe's my father used to read just all the time my father knew a lot about history I learned a lot i remember him asking when i was a kid he says why why did they have to end the empires i think they were pretty good he said he would ask that in his own newarkish way if you know what i mean edward habsburg it's like and yeah and I, i i still i still think that in my mind because as like i said earlier as joe racinello likes to say you know if you think it's going really well go look out the window and again, we're just trying to be objective. I, I just I have never gotten a satisfactory answer as to why things are just so great right now compared to where they were, let's say, for argument's sake, pre-1918, uh, particularly in Europe. But let me ask you this: you mentioned Star Wars. Uh, that's an interesting analogy. So how is how is the the how is the Habsburg Empire different from, let's say, Star Wars?
2: Uh, the idea from Star Wars that we have is an evil emperor. Uh, controlling an entire galaxy by the means of henchmen, and um, and everybody cowering in fear until finally an intrepid band of of uh, rebels stands up and and throws the emperor out. And um, uh, the Habsburg Empire was very very different. The Holy Roman Empire was a very complicated and always just barely balanced. Ensemble of different rulers, princes, dukes, dukedoms. They were under one emperor, but the emperor didn't have absolute power and could be cackling and laughing in his palace, counting his money because he very rarely had money. But his job was to balance all these different interests, languages, um, legal structures, keep it all in peace. Be the ruler as mostly as judge over their quarrels. And that is very different from what we imagine an empire to be. And this shaped the Habsburgs from the beginning. The Habsburgs were always international. If you're an emperor of, say, Russia or France lately, uh, there is always a temptation to enlarge your nation by invading neighbors. Uh, A Habsburg never had a nation. And that is also very interesting, um, the great closeness between the Habsburg Empire and what the United States are nowadays. There are great similarities. I speak about that in a chapter um, on subsidiarity um, that I have in my book. And you a wonderful nation. is built from the grassroots up. Your, your, your basic unit is, is the home. Then you have the township. Then you have the county. Then you have the states. Above that, of course, you have the federal level, but that is weaker than the basis, at least in theory. And that's wonderful, because human beings are built like that. We cannot understand our surroundings. As soon as we go above state level, on national level, or even on a supernational level, it gets very, very far away. And that's why I like the United States. And, and just to say, why are we living in turbulent times? We are living in times... Where I sometimes have the impression that decisions on world politics are being taken on a level far above the national level and far removed from democratic legitimation. That politics are not being made anymore by your national governments, but by other institutions that are supranational and that you have no influence on. And this is a dangerous thing. While a king or a Habsburg ruler was always and all the time. Had to respond to the single nations under him. Charles um, the Fifth said his son if you rule over different and singular nations and you don't respect their laws, their customs, their languages, religion, their national characters, you will be in great trouble. So that's yes, that's quite a few thoughts on that. No, no,
0: I'm I'm glad because it's one thing that we try to emphasize, not not we. I mean, we just we're just trying to Propose better ideas that already exist, obviously, subsidiarity being one of them. I mean, American federalism is supposed to be based on subsidiarity. That's why we are the un, we're not America. We are, and we have to emphasize the United States of America. We have 50 Democrat or excuse me, 50 constitutional republics, okay, in the that make up the United States. And the power is supposed to reside, again, ideally, uh in the states. And the federal government's supposed to just kind of be the glue. But the power doesn't, I'm glad you mentioned that, and that's good for everybody out there to know at the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. The power doesn't, it's not supposed to flow from the top down, it's supposed to flow from the bottom up. And what you just described is that's how the Habsburg Empire operated for 800 years or more. Joe Racinello.
1: I want to get to the battle of Lepanto, but I want to comment on what you just said. Uh, Globalism is coming out of the World Economic Forum in a major way, and you're closer to it than us. But- I'm seeing the effects of those decisions in America, and our social media is produced out of Canada. It is really coming out of Canada, and and, and frankly, um, it's affecting the common man very negatively uh, in terms of inflation, prices, and there seems to be no care outside of this global ideology. It's so far from what you just described. I mean, people are basically calling the shots an ocean away. And those ideas are matriculating into countries like Canada, the United States, uh, through corporations. They're weaponizing ideas and, and, and basically usurping constitutions through a corporation frankly, in my view, through the World Economic Forum. I'm interested in your thoughts. You're closer to it than I, uh, but at the same time, it's on your continent where a lot of these ideas are coming from, particularly Klaus Schwab and some of the other Davos uh, individuals. What are your thoughts on it? I think it's a scary movement, and I think it's going to cause the world and has caused the world tremendous amount of harm.
2: Well, first of all, I'm a diplomat, so I will phrase my words very carefully. Much better
1: than me, I'm not.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but um, we we in Europe feel this, of course. Hungary feels this very strongly, and I think many citizens in my country are very aware of the danger. Hungary is a very, you know, a feet on the earth uh, land. We, we live with the grass, Roots under our feet. And we have a very strong feeling of people from outside shouldn't tell us what to do. This is, I think, probably the central trait of the Hungarian character is when people outside our borders begin to tell us what to do, the Hungarian put the tackles up. And um, I think that's a good instinct in the current situation. But I wanted to tell you that for many of us in Europe, the United States are a place of hope. And we saw that during the very complicated last two and a half years where single states decided to act differently from the line of the federal government because they could. You have the situation of states being able to implement their own ideas and not being forced by a centralistic government. And that is a lesson that... um, Again, to come back to my book and the message of it, um, the Habsburgs always tried to respect subsidiarity. They had to because they wouldn't have survived otherwise. But there were one or two moments when Habsburg rulers tried to turn the Austro-Hungarian Empire into into a centralistic state um, with one language and with one ideas. I would I would even go further. I write this in my book. I say um, when. Um, an absolute ruler tries to impose ideas in the name of the latest uh, scientific fad onto you. Does that sound Does that sound familiar right now? And Joseph II had this whole set of ideas that he wanted to he wanted to implement in his in his empire, and he came there with a with a, a, a toolbox full of good ideas, and then he. He tried to change the Austro-Hungarian Empire into something very different. A centralistic state with a center in Vienna. And it went totally wrong. People rebelled against it, thank God. And at the end of his 10 years of rule, he had to take back many of those measures. What I'm trying to say is this globalist ideas, they will implode. Not fruitful. Man is built for local. We are local. Um, we are nations. That's maximum level. Above nations, we have to be very careful how we w- work together. But I'm full of hope that this will not remain and this will not win in the end. Left ideologies are not fruitful on the long on the long run because they they don't make sense. They don't work out
0: thank you for that edward habsburg joining us here at the front line with joe and joe joe Pasillo, joe sonello please go out and buy his book the habsburg way seven rules for turbulent times you could buy that at Sophia press joe and i uh once in a while or maybe more than once in a while edward uh we like to uh we like to stick it to the atheists a little bit and i'm going to tell you why okay i find them to be very ungrateful particularly the more aggressive ones in the in the last 20 years uh christopher hitchens when he was alive and Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins, they're very, very aggressive in their atheism. They're very aggressive um, in making ridiculous statements that the Catholic Church never did anything good. I'm not saying that. I heard Richard Dawkins say that. I heard Christopher Hitchens say that. However, the reason why I mention Ingratitude is because at the Battle of Lepanto, okay, um, and even before then, if you want to go back to, let's say, 732 AD, when um, when Charles Martel beat back the Muslims in, in, in France, fast forward a little bit to 1571, at the Battle of Lepanto and about a century later uh, at Vienna, it was the Catholic Church that beat back Muslim aggression twice that it would have resulted in the collapse of Europe, or at least Christian Europe, all right? And these atheists really would never have had a chance, uh, if you ask me. So uh, the reason why I bring that up is that the Habsburgs were very uh, instrumental in both Lepanto and Vienna. Talk about that, if you don't mind.
2: Yes. One of the chapters in my book is called um, Be Brave in War or Have a Good General. And um, Lepanto in Vienna... Uh, so those two those two ways Habsburg can be involved in a decisive victory. Um, in, in the Battle of Lepanto, which ended forever um, the rule of the Ottoman fleet in the Mediterranean, um, Habsburg was fighting on the ships that was on Juan de Austria. And the battle was... Was, it was The whole thing was a miracle um, that was brought together by Pope Pius V. And, um, and before they went to battle, they all went to confession. They all had Holy Mass in the morning. And Juan de Austria gave out an order, if anybody swears during the battle, he will be punished afterwards. They had rosaries in their hand and the sword in the other hand. And that's how they went into the Battle of Lepanto. And uh, yes, it went. It, it, this battle was a was a great victory, brought about by prayer of in, the entire Christianity. Everybody was praying rosary for that battle, and Pius V had his famous vision um, that the battle had gone well long before the message arrived. Now, in 1683. Um, about 100 years later, um, this was the battle that began the end of Ottoman presence in the Balkans and in the heart of Europe. And uh, Leopold, uh, the first, in Austria, he call him the Tertanbordel, being a diminutive form of Leopold. Um, he never went out into the battle because he wasn't built for that. But what he was really, really good was um, making alliances, and when the, the Turkish army began to move towards Europe, she reached out to the Polish King Jan Sobieski, and he just made it in time to agree with him, if they attack us, we, you defend us, if they attack you, we defend you. And then when the Turks appeared uh, before Vienna, and in the summer of 1683, um, put the ring around Vienna and, um, and tried to take the city for about two months. Um, it was uh, the combined Habsburg and Polish armies that uh, liberated Vienna. Um, As I said, Leopold I was not a warrior. He wanted to become a priest when he was young. He was forced to become an emperor. And he was an emperor for, for half a century, nearly. A great emperor, I think. And, and But his armies, his armies were there. In the morning, the day began with a holy mass set on the Kahlenberg, and uh, Jan Sobieski of Poland, the king, uh, served as an altar boy at that mass and after that, he led the greatest horse march in the history of Europe um, and, and in the end, Vienna was liberated. So, two very different ways for Habsburg to be involved in two very crucial moments. Um, of European history and and who victories uh, against the Muslim forces.
0: Thank you for that history lesson, Edward Habsburg. We really appreciate it. We hope our uh, our atheist friends might uh, might actually listen to that a little bit, especially if they value uh, Western civilization. Uh, you just mentioned two times two times that that Catholic uh, Catholic leaders saved Europe from Muslim aggression. Joe Ressinello.
1: I want to talk some more history, Edward. We're going to talk Reformation. Uh, your family clearly uh, not only uh, coped, but they they thrived during that time. I want to talk about that, but I also just want to make a, a general comment. During the Reformation, um, and please correct me if I'm wrong, both of you, I know you're very good with history, uh, our Lord rose up Ignatius Loyola. A great heresy took place, and Ignatius Loyola, The military mercenary becomes a saint, and he combats this. The great Jesuit order is formed. Then we have a heresy in France, southern France, and Dominic is risen up by our Lord, and he goes out. People said they questioned the divinity of Christ, and our Lord raises up a saint. Now there is a heresy, and that heresy is basically, to be honest with you, this idea that the world does not need God. It is an ideology similar to the Reformation, and your family thrived during the Reformation, and now it is thriving now. Talk about how it did that during the Reformation and then bridge it to now. Because people need... You're very optimistic. I wish I was as optimistic. I would say I wish I was too. And and to be honest with you, we need to be. Because Christ resurrected from the dead. And God always raises up saints.
2: First of all, I should have said this differently. As Christians, we shouldn't be optimistic. We should be hopeful. That's a different thing. Fair enough. I'm going to tell you you a very embarrassing story um, from the Reformation times. Because... In fact, when the first wave of Reformation crashed over the Habsburg land, the Habsburg emperors were catastrophically weak thoughts. Um, one of the topics of my book is uh, say that sometimes the Habsburg rulers didn't live up to our principles. And a whole series of Habsburg rulers, first Ferdinand I, brother of Charles V, he was Catholic but he was trying to make a compromise with reformation as an emperor. Then his son, Maximilian II, who stopped going to mass half through his reign, had Luther's Bible on on his nightstand and didn't receive sacraments on his deathbed. He didn't want to. His son, Rudolf II in Prague, didn't receive sacrament on the deathbed, didn't want to go to confession. His brother, Matthias, was only elected because he gave lots of concessions to the Protestants. So the story of the Habsburgs, at least in the first 75 years of Reformation time, is not glorious. It had begun with a blaze of glory because Charles V had made a very clear statement against Luther. But after that, the next three generations were catastrophic. However, and this is my answer to your question, at the times when the Habsburg emperor was not very strong, many other members of the family rose up and shone and the emperor's brothers and sisters and cousins and nephews carried the faith through the next 70 years. I describe one of those stories in um, in my book, it, you will find it on uh, in an article. I wrote an article for First Things, uh, Archduchess Magdalena, she was one of the daughters of the emperor Ferdinand I, she wanted to fund a monastery. Found a monastery. The father wanted to marry. In the end, he allowed it to her. She founded a founded the monastery. She followed the Council of Trent very closely. She was very interested in all that came to be done from a monastery in Hall in Austria to spread good writings against Protestant heresies, and then. Uh, a key moment of her life was when the Papal nuncio came to Austria to convince the Habsburgs to finally stand up and fight and begin, become champion of Counter-Reformation. And he knew, I can't go to the emperor because the emperor is totally weak soul. So he went to this woman in her monastery who was just a cousin, and she began to, to build a network of Habsburg allies around Austria. And together they hammered out a plan how to take Austria back for the Catholic faith. So yes, we didn't, we didn't thrive during reformation. Um, we were pretty weak, but it wasn't always the emperors that were the good. And that's my, my message for today is um, every single one of us can be uh, the vanguard of, of, of Christ here in this world again. Every family that you start, every time you say yes to children, you, you raise them in faith. You fight the heresy we're living right now. Every one of us can do that. I mean, the Habsburg family is doing it too, but it doesn't have to be us. It can be you and it can be everybody. Absolutely. Let's, uh, let's, <clears throat> let's keep it for a second
0: on holy women. Tell us about Maria Teresia habsburg Lothringen, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. So now she was a mother of 16 children. Uh, In our research, what we read was that she saved the family lands and organized pilgrimages, uh, countrywide vigils in honor of Our Lady and the Blessed Sacrament. So who was this holy woman, Edward?
2: I would say if there was a patron saint of multitasking, then it would have been her. Um, Her situation was absolutely dramatic. Uh, her father didn't have any son. She was the only Habsburg left. After centuries of many Habsburgs all over the world, there was only her. Now, he managed to convince all the other rulers and the pre-electors that she could carry on the family by marrying someone and taking his name at the end of her name. and that turned Habsburg into Habsburg-Lothringen because she married Hans von Lothringen and but still she had to prove that she could have children And, um, and then several things happened at once, her father died, she had to become empress with next to no experience, very young, barely married with a few children uh, her emperor Fred, uh, enemy Frederick of Prussia attacked the Habsburg lands in Silesia. Several other European countries began attacking the Austria, moving into Austria, and um, putting in doubt the agreement about her being ruler. And it looked like her goose was good, It was over. Game over for the young Habsburg em- emperor ruler. But she was formidable. She had an incredible energy. She was a deeply devout Catholic. And she surprised everybody by going to the place that nobody expected. She went to the Hungarians. And the Hungarians were more or less unwilling subjects to the Habsburgs, always fighting for their freedom. She went to them with her children, with her three year old son and successor, Joseph, on the hand. And she begged Hungarians to help her save. The hungarian uh, land, and they at once said, "Vita mit sanguinem pro pro Regina nostra." We give uh, blood, blood and life for our queen, and with her, with their help, so she was very good. Then she was cheerful, and she had 16 children in 20 years of marriage, and she repopulated Europe with Habsburgs. But imagine if she hadn't had any children. Imagine if she hadn't had this. Its hopeful, optimistic and energetic character. It would have been over in 1740, but uh, it went on and on and on. So there are strong women in our house, and before every of those 16 births, she, uh, she ordered the entire Habsburg land, to set out the Blessed Sacrament, and for people to pray in front of the Blessed Sacrament, and have a rosary protection for a good birth. She knew how to live her life as a a Catholic. Absolutely. Uh, We're running
0: short on time. The book is The Habsburg Way Seven Rules for Turbulent Times. That's out from Sophia Press. Edward, if you don't mind, for our audience here at the front line with Joe and Joe and the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, some some parting thoughts that you'd like maybe for us to think about um, would be greatly appreciated.
2: Yes, most people would be surprised how close Habsburg thought and US thought can be. There are many ties between the Habsburg history and the United States. You will be surprised to find them in the books. I've written this book for American readers because most of my followers on Twitter are Americans. And I love the United States very, very much, American culture, your country. Uh, I now own a pair of Texas boots that I sometimes wear <laughs> secretly under my ambassador clothing. <laughs> <laughs> Edward Habsburg, uh, what's your uh,
0: where's your social media on Twitter? Uh, how could how could our folks find you? Yeah, you you
2: just go on Twitter and you type Edward Habsburg and you'll have my handle at once. And you can find me on Twitter and you can reach, also reach out to me. I think I have a quite an amusing Twitter account that is not a typical dry ambassador's account. <laughs>
0: Awesome. And if you're out there and you heard that, you could also follow Joe and I on Twitter um, at with Joe and Joe at with Joe and Joe. We have a small following right now, only because we weren't pursuing Twitter up until very recent events involving a man named Elon Musk. So now we look to Twitter as being a bit more of an open platform, at least uh, at least here. Joe and I could uh, voice our opinions, probably a little bit more um openly than we can on YouTube but you can follow us also on YouTube at the Frontline TV the Frontline TV so help us out we never ask you for uh, for any money or anything like that Joe and I don't get paid but what we do ask is that if you like what we do follow like subscribe share do all that fun stuff Edward Habsburg you are welcome back at the Frontline with Joe and Joe anytime brother
2: I had the most wonderful conversation with you two guys and uh, of course I'm going to follow you two on Twitter now Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. And thank you all out
0: there for joining us at the Frontline with Joe and Joe on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. Remember, 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York City metropolitan area. Thanks once again. And remember, until the next time, that our conversation is your conversation, and that conversation is going on everywhere. We'll talk to you soon.